Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, thanks for joining us on the Central Line. I'm Katie Berlin. I'm your host, and I am here today with Allison Gottlieb, Certified Veterinary Technician and Veterinary Technician Specialist in Emergency Critical Care. Allie, welcome to Central Line. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. It's wonderful to have you. And Allie, I was wondering if maybe you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Absolutely. I uh, am vet nurse. I started in the 90s at a cat hospital and where my love for, for all things cat started. And Couldn't tell that. <laughs> and continued. Um, yeah, definitely my heart meows is what I always say. Love it. Love it. And I had the fortune to meet some really great people who fostered my passion and education. And I got my VTS in the year 2000. So it's been a little while. I've worked in several emergency hospitals, referral centers, and for 15 years, myself and another VTS in emergency and critical care had a consulting business called Four Paws Consulting, where we kind of went into different clinics and taught and we did everything from trap, neuter, return to critical care for a long time and met a lot of great people. And then we went to several clinics and became educators education coordinators together. She did more of the management side. I did more of the education side. And recently, I just started a new job at a, a hybrid practice. So it's general practice and emergency referral um, in my area, which is really uh, exciting doing education for them. So I'm learning a lot too, which is, which is great. That's such a fantastic thing about this profession, right? Because you can just keep learning even after, like you got your VTS in 2000 and I love hearing that you're still learning. Oh my God, every day. It's amazing. Amazing. I always think, you know, you and I have had a lot of different jobs. I feel like that's that's starting to become a common theme that people have taken on different roles within the profession, which I also love so much. Um, There's so many ways to be involved in vet med, but what is one thing that you love most about what you're doing right now? There are two things I would have to say. Um, number one is patient care. I, I love it. I, I, you know, some people don't want to be on the floor. I need to be on the floor. I need to feed cats yeah. and give them catnip. And and then the other is education and being able to pass what I was fortunate enough to learn and watching people get it. There's something about watching somebody really get it that that helps me sleep at night. So those are my, I think, two favorite things. I love that. Two different things, but obviously can't have one without the other. Exactly. One of the reasons that you're joining us today is uh, because the pain management guidelines, the AHA pain management guidelines just came out, the updated ones for 2022. And super excited about that because pain management is a favorite topic of mine too. I've always been really interested in it. I was an anesthesia nerd and vet school. And I was like the only one ever who did my senior seminar talk on anesthesia and, and uh, pain management. So uh, it's a it's a favorite topic of mine, but I know you're very passionate about it too. And you were actually a member of the task force for this 
for these guidelines. And I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about what that means to be on a task force for an AHA guidelines. Well, first of all, it was one of the greatest honors of my life. I mean, I literally spent three days on Zoom with my heroes um, of veterinary medicine, people who literally wrote the book and who I've yeah. quoted my whole life. It was it was kind of awe-inspiring for me. But it was also really what was so great for me was that technician standpoint was so honored and respected. Oh, I love that. It was it was amazing. I mean, I, I kept you know getting like, Allie, what do you think? And and you know, as a tech from the '90s, not a lot of people ask that question. So. It, it was really collaborative and, and, and just an honor to, to be a part of it. And I love AHA guidelines for everything. I'm a big, as an educator, I use them for everything. And so to be a part of, of this one in particular was really just almost the dream come true. I love to hear that. And it's kind of ridiculous, isn't it, that you say as a tech from the 90s, people don't ask your opinion a lot. I feel like of all the people whose opinion should matter, (laughs) it's somebody who's been a technician since the 90s. Like you have seen some stuff. And you, you know, I know at my first practice out of school, I mean, the technicians carried me. And this was in New York. All of the technicians were licensed techs. And I mean, they could run that place. They did run that place. (laughs) And without them, I still wouldn't know how to express anal glands (laughs) properly. You know, they, they taught me, they had everything all set up for me for my first procedures. You know, they knew so much. You know, you all just are really the backbone of what we do. And I feel like it's so backwards that your opinions sometimes aren't heard and aren't valued. So I love to hear that about about the task force. So valued. I mean, amazingly yeah. valued. That's wonderful. So you're probably super familiar with these guidelines, because um, I'm sure there's was a ton of discussion back and forth as they were getting finalized. From your experience point of view as a credential technician, what is one thing that we could be doing differently as a profession in the area of pain management? And I'm sure that's a tough question, but <laughs> one big thing that comes to mind. The, the big thing is to be proactive, not reactive. I mean, you, I'm sure, agree we've, we were getting somewhere. I mean, we've definitely made huge leaps and bounds, but I think we're still kind of in that reactive phase, the, the lame dog or, or, you know, the aggressive cat. And I think we really need to, to look at this as a lifelong, from the time they're puppies and kittens, education kind of thing and not react once there is a problem. Yeah, it's unfortunately pain is kind of a fact of life. So we should be able to see it coming. So that makes so much sense. Yeah. Uh, And that is a big message that I took from these guidelines for sure is the idea of being proactive about pain. Do you feel like this is something that requires more work on the part of the veterinary team or on the veterinary client or both? Both. Absolutely both. I think it starts with the team and um, client education. And I I think that's one area we we could work on. And um, because we all know, you know, if we don't educate them, they get education elsewhere and and some of the elsewhere may not be as reliable. So really important. I also think, you know, it's it's important for us as a as a team 
for our morale to, to help with client education. It's frustrating for us when clients aren't educated. And, and I think it, it's a win, 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 win for everybody and the patients end up getting the benefit. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of times we get frustrated with clients who don't seem to know what's going on and yet we're their best source of information. And, and sometimes I think we're just sort of caught in our own bubble and don't realize that that is an opportunity versus a barrier to providing good care. So definitely agree with that. These guidelines have so much content. They're so meaty. They have so much in them. And I'm really excited for everybody to read them and um, get familiar with them too. But as somebody who's super familiar with them, what are some pearls from these guidelines? I I just want to give you sort of open floor to say (laughs) what you feel like you want people to take away from these above all else. As a cat person, I must say feline pain is just, you know, neglected for so many reasons. Um, You know, even as a veterinary community, I don't think we're really aware of how much specifically OA, osteoarthritis pain there is in cats. I, I think as a community, we need to really recognize that. Also, feline, recognizing feline pain is is can be more difficult than than their canine counterparts. So we have to be more creative and really rely on on owners for that as well. Um, I also think, you know, just like everything in vet med, I think of CPR. I think of everything. It's a team sport. Um, this is not a veterinarian problem. This is not a, a technician problem, and this is not, you know, an owner problem or a, a CSR front desk problem. This is a team sport, and if we work together as a team, this is this is doable. And, and these guidelines really help kind of organize that um, and, and make it doable. But it's all about the cats for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, cats are, they don't make it easy for you, do they? No, they don't. (laughs) But but I guess if you ask them, they might say, well, I'm screaming at you what I need, and you're just not understanding. And and so really it's, it's, (laughs) it's a two way street there. And, um, and I, I agree so much. I've had so much education in the last few years uh, in practice. I was working at a fear-free practice and we were really um, focused on, you know, making cats comfortable. And it was really eye-opening for me how much I had been missing, I think, earlier in my career. They just, they keep it close to the vest compared to humans. But once you know what they're saying, it's right all out there. It, it really is. And taking all of their emotional, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think about a cat I had um, years ago. His name was George, and he was a bottle baby, um, but he was a good patient. And um, he had some urinary issues. I also tend to perf- not prefer, but take on the urinary cats. Um, I feel like we all have a urinary cat. Yeah. If <laughs> we've been here long enough. Exactly. And once you're feeding the diet, what's one more is always my yeah, theory. Yeah. Um, but George, he start, didn't start out as a urinary cat, um, but wound up as one and a diabetic as well. And, and George was intercat aggressive in, with one particular cat in my house. His name was Waffles and he was kind of a, a feral. Um, so he was nervous on a good day. And, and it was weird because George got along with everyone else except Waffles. He wanted to kill Waffles. 
And I, I know, I know he was already, and he was twice his size and just terrified. And I did all, you know, all of the things that, you know, with the pheromones and meds and separating and, you know, introducing and all that and nothing was helping. And I actually considered rehoming waffles um, because I felt so bad. I, I, I didn't know how to kind of make this better for him. And George wound up having a full urinary obstruction. And I brought him in. And at that time, I did a PU. He had not obstructed previously, but I was traveling a lot and I was worried. And so I did a PU. And the minute I brought George home from the hospital after a surgery, incision, bleeding the whole nine yards, he immediately bonded with waffles. And the two of them were inseparable until the day George died. Oh my gosh. This is one of the most profound lessons I've ever learned. Um, And what I learned was that George was uncomfortable and he was taking it out on waffles. And once his discomfort was alleviated, he was able to bond with waffles. So what that taught me really was that any behavior in a cat, think of it as pain. But even before you think of a behavior, I was thinking of of it as a behavioral aspect and it was a pain aspect and once the pain was alleviated. So that's what I think of when I think of, of cats and pain is that, you know, if they're doing a weird behavior, think about pain. Um, and, and those kind of things I think are, are really life changing, um, for us and them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I love that. You should, it's like a, a legend. You could do like the ballad of George and waffles. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. And it's, we've all seen those cats that come in with a severe stomatitis or, or cystitis or something. And then they're a different cat when, when we pull those teeth and the owners can't believe it either. And I feel like accumulating that, those stories over years and a career really adds up to we've been letting cats down, but we also know how to help them. And so we just need to learn to listen a little bit better. Exactly. Uh, so that's, that's a fantastic story. I'm going to remember that, cause, <laughs> especially because I love the names George and Waffle. Yeah, they were um, good cats. And, yeah. And that also highlights what you were talking about before, which is one of the other big messages that is right front and center in these guidelines, which is the importance of the entire veterinary team and the pet owner being involved uh, in managing pain because we can't manage it on our own and we can't expect pet owners to manage it without us um, or without knowing that that's what's going on. And there definitely is... um, you know, sometimes I think a breakdown in communication, even within the veterinary team about what is going on in terms of pain and how we can best get ahead of it. One thing that I wanted to ask you about as a technician, you probably are even more dialed into the dynamic, say, between the front office and the back staff than I was as an associate. You probably have seen a lot of different practices and a lot of different dynamics between the front and back. And I'm doing quotation marks with my fingers because (laughs) really we're all there for the same reason. Our jobs are a little bit different, but our mission should be the same. But in so many practices I've seen, that relationship is fractured and there's a big barrier there. And I feel like the front office team 
you know, doesn't get the same level of exposure and education in terms of pain management and patient comfort. Would you say that you've seen that to be the case as well? Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And I can tell you personally, I can't do anything without the front office. So, right. I mean, God forbid we should have to do that job as well as the jobs that we were doing. That is the hardest job. I, Absolutely. cannot give them enough props for being on those front lines, especially right now. It's very, very difficult right now. Absolutely. Um, but they're doing this hard job and they're not getting the benefits of being able to interact with the patients, being able to get the education that they need to help better inform clients who are often beating their door down because they're angry or upset or stressed. Um, so uh, how do you think we could do a better job of involving the entire team in pain education and just being aware of what pain looks like? That's a great question. And it's not easy, but it is doable. There are a couple things that I I have seen work. I, I think, you know, finding the right way to communicate in each practice definitely helps. I also think having a pain, what I like to call a pain team, is incredibly helpful. People like us who are passionate about pain and relieving pain and recognizing pain and putting them together as a team. And then they can either disseminate information to their, their counterparts, or they can be kind of in charge of dealing with these, these painful animals, especially when we're talking about, you know, long-term chronic pain patients. These are frequent flyers and they need a lot of care. And I can't do it without the front, those great people up front. So having them involved and, and kind of just picking, picking out these, these people who are, are kind of our pain heroes and having them really foster this communication and, it, I found that incredibly helpful. And it's an, it's really helpful for the pet owners too, you know, to keep communicating with the same people and people that understand their frustrations as well. We're all in this business because we want to make a difference for pets and their people. Well, what could make a bigger difference than keeping pets out of pain? In the 2022 AHA Pain Management Guidelines for Dogs and Cats, a task force of some of VetMed's most preeminent experts on pain compiled their most up-to-date recommendations and resources to help you and your team do what you do best, take amazing care of your patients. They've designed a tiered approach to both acute and chronic pain in cats and dogs, including both drug and non-drug therapies, and emphasize the importance of working with pet owners to recognize and continually reassess pets in pain. The 2022 AHA Pain Management Guidelines are made possible by generous grants from Arthrex Vet Systems, Burringer Ingelheim Animal Health, Elanco, and Zoetis. Great pain management is a team sport, so make sure your team's prepared. The 2022 AHA Pain Management Guidelines are live now at aha.org slash pain management. That makes so much sense. And the idea of a pain team, like a sort of a team of champions who are really well-versed in pain management and passionate about it. I think that's so interesting because we feel like we have to do it all in this profession. I mean, we all feel that way, I think. And, you know, as veterinarians, as technicians, I know that that's the case. We just feel like whatever someone asks us to do, we have to know how to do it. We have to have to find the time to do it right then. And we have to figure out how to get the 
appropriate message across the pet owner, but having a focused team who is really the go-to for that just makes so much sense. And that includes client care representatives um, who are really the ones who can get in front of that pain first by asking the right questions and listening to the owners who are upset. Yeah. And communicating with them and even just Mm -hmm. watching them in the waiting room. There's a lot of information to be gathered there. And so true. And they're there, you know, they're watching. So, so important to really include them in the education and, and, and if they're passionate about it, even more beneficial to everybody. Yeah. So in practices where there is a pretty significant sort of barrier between the front office team and the technicians and veterinarians, because um, we know this is the case, no judgment, like a lot of times geographically, it's just really easy for that to happen. But it can seem like a big leap to suddenly say, okay, client care team, we're going to start educating you about pain management, you know, and they're like, wait, what? We're overwhelmed. What? Do you think is maybe one actionable step that those practices could take to start involving interested members of the client care team in pain management? Great question. I'm a checklist person. I like a checklist. Same. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So satisfying. Yeah. I don't know if it's my ADD or or what, but (laughs) I like a checklist. And there are some really great checklists out there for particularly OA pain. Um, and I think that's a yeah. really great way to kind of dip your foot in the water um, and maybe not jump all in because they're easy. They, they, a lot of them have pictures and videos. They can be emailed. They can be filled out in the waiting room. So I think that's a great way to kind of start getting people involved. Um, and you will see if you use these lists that People at these animals will score differently pre and 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 after treatment has started, and I think you know anybody is going to be turned on by that. Yeah, that's a really great point too. Is that there are resources out there that exist? We don't have to reinvent the wheel in order to get people more involved in pain awareness and pain management. Exactly. Um, and what you're talking about checklists and and um, resources that we can give to clients or direct clients to really is such a key point because it's one thing to start educating the rest of the team who maybe haven't had the benefit of that education so far, but it is, it seems like quite another thing to have clients become more aware of pain before it's severe, maybe when they weren't even coming in to talk about pain and the checklists and the resources that exist actually kind of marry the two. Exactly. And it it starts the conversation, you know, even if owners, you know, aren't there for pain, they're there for a different reason. They don't even want to think about other things. It just plants a seed. It gets that conversation started and, and they'll go home and think about it and, and come back and ask about it, which is really nice too. That is great. Yes. And some of those resources, um, I'll just mention now, we we have linked to in the uh, guidelines uh, website for this pain management guidelines. So uh, the uh, web address is aha.org slash guidelines. And then if you click on the pain management guidelines, you can get to a page that has a bunch of resources, including some of those checklists. So I definitely highly encourage people to look at those and see what might be right for their practice because there's so much good stuff out there and we just aren't always aware of it all. Yeah. So, yeah. Fantastic. Um, so I wanted to ask you to, I'm going off 
the outline here for a minute, Ali, because um, I really wanted to ask you a little bit about the tiered approach that they have in the that you guys sort of put together in the guidelines. The tiered approach in the pain management guidelines really breaks down how to think about pain and what steps should we be taking first in every patient if we can, and then moving through the tiers to add on treatments and therapies as necessary. And um, I think that's a really interesting way to think about pain. Do you feel like that tiered approach is sort of a making sense of how we've been handling pain so far, or do you think it's a new paradigm for us that's going to require us to sort of have a mindset shift? That's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's primarily new, though. I think we, unfortunately, we think of pain as when they present with a problem, we're going to deal with the pain. And the tiered approach really, again, is that overall, every patient needs to be thought of as a potential pain case. And every patient really should be evaluated for pain. It, It also breaks down the chronic versus the acute approach, which is really important as well. I do think we're better with acute than chronic, um, which makes sense. Um, It's easier. Uh, Not easy, but easier. So I think it does really help with that kind of chronic. And then there's the other part that I think it it helps with, which is the follow through and the follow up. Just because we sent the dog home on Rimadil does not mean that we've alleviated the pain. And the, the, tiered approach really helps us kind of regroup and follow up in, in, you know, three months or, or six weeks and see where they are and what modalities we may need to add in on top of maybe an NSAID if we're talking about a dog or a cat and, uh, and really kind of keeping on top of that, not just thinking, oh, we treated it. It's all gone. Yeah, such a great point. And sometimes with acute pain, we still could use a little help, like um, tools like the feline grimace scale, which um, oh my God, I is, love. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I, I know we've spent a long time sort of using gut feelings to look at cats and see if they were in pain, but to quantify it in these little, these signs that we can actually say, okay, are we identifying that or not? Um, if you, if you're listening and you haven't checked out the feline grimace scale, uh, that you'll also find a link to that resource on our webpage. And the app. Um, for the, yes. There's a feline grimace scale app, which is amazing. I use um, it every day, every day. Yeah. See, and you've been doing this a long time and you are a cat person and you still find that that app helps you. And um, that is a good lesson right there yeah. is that sometimes we just need a little bit of help to figure out what's going on with our patients. Yeah. 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 And it takes practice. I mean, mm-hmm. it does take practice, but I, I do pull it out every single day and I'll write in my treatment notes what score they they got on the app. Um, because yeah. it's, you know, before we really knew that much, it was touch it. That was, that was always my, right. my answer. Well, touch it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this is a little, a little more of a encompassing way before touching. Yeah, for sure. Since sometimes the touching ain't happening, even if they're not in pain. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. I have a cat who prefers minimal touching yeah. regardless. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but I, I think that's, you had said something before too, about, um, the tiered approach really encourages the follow-up. So the acute pain, we can still need help with, and there are tools available now to help with that. But chronic pain is so difficult because then we sort of release them into the wild with their owner and who knows what happens. Yep. And 
we know that pain doesn't just miraculously melt away. And that seems like a really good place for other team members to get involved too in the follow-up. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Having, you know, people who are dedicated to PT and having people who are dedicated yeah. to weight loss, those people like that, that's their passion are incredibly helpful because that is follow-up. Absolutely. That brings up a good point too, which pain management isn't all about drugs and acute and chronic pain. You know, obviously both can benefit from medications, but there are non-medical therapies that are really important in the management of chronic pain, especially. And that seems like a place where we can get very easily overwhelmed. And I know as an associate, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have time to call these people and talk about weight loss. And is their dog losing weight? And do they have any questions about the diet I put them on? And one person does not have to do all of that. Yeah. And that's a very important lesson. It is not a job for one. It's just too much. It's too much. Yeah. It's definitely a team sport. And there are animals that, you know, can't take medication for whatever reason, or owners can't get medication in them, which is a whole other, you know, ball of wax. So there are a lot of creative solutions and a lot of people that need to be kind of hands-on in this, in this task. Absolutely. I think that's a great, that's just overall the, the biggest takeaway that I would want just from reading these guidelines and from my own experience that I would want people to take away from reading them is that it involves the entire team if we want to really get ahead of pain and pets. So I love that we've been talking about that. You're so passionate about that. I hope people feel as inspired as I do to sort of go forth and manage pain <laughs> after they listen to this and after they read those guidelines because it's so important. And and once you see like how that your hard work is paying off. And once you see that, you know, yeah. dog come in walking more like a dog you get it. And it just keeps that fostering that passion and keeps keeps yeah. you going. What could be more inspiring than that, really? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I want to be mindful of your time, Allie. But there was one question that I was dying to ask you, because um, having known a number of really amazing dedicated technicians who just, the VTS is something that they just, it, it's just beyond the capabilities of so many people to conceive of going for this really major um, qualification. It is such a big deal to do that. And so many people are capable of doing it, but logistically or time-wise or commitment-wise, it just, it's just, it seems like a lot. What, and you've been doing this for so long and are still so passionate about it. What motivated you to get that VTS in the first place in emergency critical care? And what keeps that passion going? There are two people in my life that I really um, credit uh, with with this. Um, the, the first uh, is Nancy Schaffron, who was one of the original um, VTSs in ECC. And I was fortunate enough to be able to spend five years in a little room with her, an ICU that was not overly busy. Um, and she really encouraged me and fostered my passion. Um, and the other person is, uh, her name is Jessica Kerr, and she was my business partner, also a VTS and ECC. And Nancy took us youngins who really didn't know what we were doing and mentored us. And Jess is still, to this day, my cheerleader, and I'm her cheerleader. And we 
when one of us is having a bad day, we rely on the other. And that's how we got through it. That's how we got through the cases and all of it is together. So I would say those two and just a a passion for vet med, learning new stuff, uh, watching, you know, cats come in that are, are, have urinary obstructing, obstruction are like, you know, kind of half dead, um, and, and watching them eat the next day that nothing makes me happier really. Um, so cats, Nancy and Jess, I would say. Um, <laughs> That's a good answer. Good uh, answer. Yeah, they really, uh, it, it was a, a magical time and I just feel so lucky to have met them when I did. And I really attribute everything to them. It means so much to have people um, who can follow along on your journey and be supportive when things maybe, because we all go through periods where our, our energy starts to flag a little bit oh, and yeah. that support is so necessary, especially in this profession. But yeah. I, um, I, I love that answer. And I think it's so important for people to see people like you who have you know achieved that big accomplishment and kept that passion alive for this long and been able to continue learning and continue working in the field and find new ways to be involved while still doing the things that really keep that fire lit. Um, because you know, we, that we can't keep losing technicians. The most amazing technicians are leaving the field and they, there's so much more that they, um, should and could do. Um, and it, it really helps, I think, to see people like you who are, um, vocal about it and doing such amazing things. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, it's a great profession. It really yeah. is. It's, and it's changing all the time. I mean, it's a, a different profession than it was in the nineties and techs are, it's a different job now and mm. it is sustainable. And I, I, you know, I still have 10 fingers and I'm still vertical, so it's possible. It is possible. I love that. (laughs) Ali, thank you so much for joining us. I've had so much fun in this conversation and um, I just really can't wait for people to read the guidelines and, and to listen to this and really sort of start feeling a new enthusiasm for a new way to approach pain. Thank you. Thank an you. honor to be a part of them, an honor to be here, and an honor to be talking about pain. Uh, and just a reminder to uh, people who are listening, the pain management guidelines for 2022 are on the AHA website. You can go to aha.org guidelines, and all of our guidelines are there. Um, look for more to be released later this year. Um, but if you click on that pain management link, you'll find um, also a whole bunch of resources that will um, help you uh, sort of redefine how you're approaching pain in your practice and with your clients. And um, all that is just super exciting. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.